Arlen Sorensen. I consider him the godfather of the MSP, the managed service provider or the technology service provider. And he's very humble. Um, you know, he, he doesn't really accept that. And, you know, that's his prerogative. But he, in, in my eyes, he founded the peer groups that I've been a part of for a long, long time. Uh, helped me, the peer groups helped me change, you know, my attitude, my direction, my knowledge and business. Uh, I just, uh, um, I love this man. I mean, he's a, he's incredibly humble. He's very knowledgeable. He started his MSP in Iowa in 2000. He had a buying group together, and you know that's a Y2K kind of uh, flattened out. You know, he got some MSPs together there in Iowa. Went to one of the distributors, Ingram Micro, and tried to get a buying group. And eventually, you know, made peers, and uh, just an incredible success story. Always love talking to Arlen. Everybody in the MSP world knows Arlen. I can't imagine they don't. Uh, but just a humble, humble man. What he does as far as discipline, you might find shocking. He's done it every day since I think 2006. Has not missed a day. Uh, what motivates him? Uh, what, how he defines success? Does he like the term MSP? just different ways he's got four different classes of defining managed service providers and it's not just service providers by the way it's small businesses or just business in general uh, kind of four different modes he has uh, but just great conversation great discussion where the industry is going where technology is going what are the two main things that small businesses worry about today i'll give you a hint staffing and something else. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Arlen Sorensen, what a what a pleasure. It's it's wonderful to see you. Thanks for your time today. Is it a good time right now to be an MSP? Well, you know, the MSP world has been pretty good the last two years, actually. Yeah. You know, uh, there's no question that uh you know, we were needed in the industry uh, to keep the keep the economy alive, basically. So, yeah, I think it's a really good time to be an MSP. Yeah, we definitely, you know, we saw some, not many, just kind of 
get hurt because they worked with hospitality and other industries right. that got hurt. But the overwhelming majority, the workforce has moved out, their customers' workforce has moved out, and they needed MSP's help. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the label essential worker was really true for mm. MSPs. They were the essential workers. Yeah, they absolutely were. And uh, what's the general tone? You run a great peer group there. You you invented it, of course. You started it, and now it's part of ConnectWise. And uh, you've got a lot of MSTs. Uh, the, the power of the peers is just so important. I mean, what is the overall temperament and uh, you know attitude of the MSPs these days? Well, I would say in general, most of them are doing okay financially. They're struggling with labor. Mm. Uh, they just can't get enough people uh, to manage to, to fit with the growth path they're on. So I, I don't know that I could name an MSP that doesn't have at least one open rec for, for an employee. Wow. And a lot of them have multiples. So that's the real frustration right now. They could be growing a lot faster if they could just get the people. When I talk to MSPs, they've got two big concerns. And one is definitely, you know, talent. And then the other is just, of course, just cybersecurity. Right. And inflation's another new one. Oh. You know, the cost of the business is going up significantly and quickly. And uh, MSPs are not the greatest marketers or salespeople. So having to go have that conversation with their customers that, hey, my costs are up 10%. I can't just eat this. We're going to have to. We're going to have to adjust pricing. That's a, that's a hard conversation for a lot of folks. It certainly is. And, you know, why are 25% of um, my good friend Jay McBain told me 25% at Forrester, 25% of MSPs do not make money. Does that surprise you? No, doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, we've been benchmarking companies since 2008. Right. And uh, there's no question that, you know, there's a, there's a, segment at the top, top 20% that do really well. There's a segment at the bottom that are not doing it at all well mm. and uh, basically break even or lose money. And then you've got the 60% in the middle that are doing okay and have really done better the last two years than they were previously, except like you said, if they were in a vertical that got really slammed like dental, hospitality, medical, whatever. Yeah. And then, and then they felt it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talk to MSPs. I love talking to MSPs and I always uh, encourage them. I mean, let's talk about peer groups. There's just, there's peer groups that are, aren't in our industry. There's just general ones. Uh, there's just, I know that, you know, when I first met you, I, I joined the peer group and it was, it just changed my business around. I was no longer on an island by myself. I felt like, you know, I was a uh, part of a tribe and you, you brought that all together. It, I've, I've heard the story, but please refresh my memory. Now, why did you start peer groups? I started peer groups back in 2000 because my company, my, my MSP was VAR was struggling mm. and uh, we had just come through Y2K. I had staffed up because we were going to have the greatest opportunity in the history of it mm. and it didn't happen in Iowa. And I had way too many people and no work and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. So we called three other companies in the, around the state and said, can we just get together? I, I need, I need some perspective on what's going on here. And they agreed. We met. Uh, I learned that, you know, Y2K missed Iowa completely. There was no work for anybody. Really? 
which, you know, gave me the assurance that I should downsize because I just couldn't carry nine extra people. Uh, so that was the one and only time I had to do a major layoff. But um, had I not had those peers to tell me what was really going on with them, I might have I might have tried to carry this out thinking that, you know, somewhere some magic was going to happen and that would have been financially a, a real mistake. Tell me what the phone calls like. Were these were these friendly or they competitors? They were the, these three that you reached out to. Had they heard from you've been talking to them previously? We, we had we had uh, sourced product to them uh, previously. They weren't competitors. They were from varying parts of the state and had needed our help on things in the past uh, because of some of the authorizations we had for product. So we knew them a little bit. They weren't like close, but uh, they were, they were people that were friendly and, and uh, you know, they were in the same boat. It was like they didn't have any work either and they had done the same kind of thing. So, uh, you know, Y2K is the greatest event that never happened for <laughs> IT. It really was. What a crazy, crazy time. We're all just sitting there like at New Year's, just, you know, that's right. ears to the computer. What's going to happen? And I remember hearing like, you know, like Tonga and like all those Pacific Islands get, you know, get are the first to, you know, be in the new year. Like, oh, everything's fine there. It's sweeping across. It's sweeping across. Here we are in the U.S. And yeah, everything yeah. is just fine. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, crazy, crazy time. And so eventually you kind of made a, a buying group for a distributor, right? We did. That was that was my original kind of plan for peer groups was let's let's create a buying group. We, we had six companies by then and uh, – you know, I got the great idea of flying to Ingram out in Buffalo and uh, sitting down with their their sales team and telling them that uh, this little mighty powerful group ought to get a discount. And, uh, you know, I basically got laughed out of the room. Really? I mean, we didn't have any volume to speak of, number one. And uh, number two, you know, we had no track record, no history, no, there was no reason for them to even listen to me. They did it because we had a relationship, but yeah, that didn't, that didn't last long. And, uh, you know, we did convince them to let us do some joint buying under one, uh, you know, ID, hmm. which was ours. And that worked okay until one of the peer group companies got financially in trouble and couldn't pay their bill. Whoa. And then uh, that's where the that's where the buying group ended. Uh, was you know when when we were responsible for these other companies paying their bill, it had never crossed my mind that they might not be able right. to, but uh, it happened. And uh, you know we came out of it okay in the end, but it was. Uh, it was, it was an idea that just wasn't going to work the way we were trying to run the peer groups. Wow. Yeah. That's gotta be, Oh man. Cause all of a sudden you're getting billed. And so you're billing them. They're kind of, it's kind of a master agent kind of thing. And, right. and then they're not paying their bills and then you're stuck with it because it's your ID. Very interesting. I never thought of that. Yep. That's exactly what happened though. And so then how do you move that into peers? So, I mean, you know, the buying group theoretically was going to have some positive financial impact, but the real value of peers is getting in a room, bringing a problem and asking people for their input. Mm. And, you know, that's where we found the value was, you know, and, and over the over the next few years, we put together the 
the planning process so that we could help companies actually create a plan so they knew what they were trying to do, which then allowed us to hold them accountable through goal setting. So, you know, when, when I talk about the real impact of peer groups, it's really having a plan, setting goals, and then having people that can hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, most, most entrepreneurs run a business because they want to be the boss and do what they want to do. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily what they need to do mm -hmm. if they're going to actually grow a company. It's why those 20% are losing money because they're not doing the right things. Mm -hmm. It's not that the industry can't support them. It's that they don't do the right things. And they, I'd almost guarantee they're not in a peer group where they've got somebody that's pushing them to do the things they need to do. Very interesting. Because I remember when I first heard the concept and I remember thinking, well, I'm going to have 10 or 11 other MSPs in a room with me that I'm going to get really comfortable with. Won't I feel you know, that I'm competing against them. And I knew they weren't in my geography, but that never came up once. It never felt, uh, it, it was more of a camaraderie. It was more of, like I said, a tribe. And uh, that just what gets wiped right away. Well, and today, Joe, I mean, everybody's a competitor today mm. with the internet, right? So, so people, you know, there are some people that still view, you know, somebody halfway across the world as a competitor, but mm. Folks that get involved in peer groups realize that uh, competition is a part of life and, and the value you get from a peer group from talking about the right things and, and learning the right things is far outweighs the one time you might run into somebody else in the room on some crazy deal. Uh, and you work that out anyway. You know, when you've got a trusted relationship, competition is really the least of the things you worry about. Yeah, very, very much so. So, you know, if you're listening and you're, you're not part of a peer group, please, you know, join one. Uh, it's just, it just does wonders. There's a lot of other ones out there that are, you know, like I said, horizontal, but just what it did for me. And, you know, I got the great opportunity, of course, Arlen, uh, I actually became a facilitator at one point that our facilitator left. Yep. You asked me to become a facilitator and I, I really, really enjoyed that. And that was, you know, the old cliche about herding cats, but it was, you know, because you've got some egos there sometimes and, oh, yeah. you know, and you got to kind of align everybody. And, um, uh, how does that process go now with facilitation? I get to speak to some of your facilitators. They're all great by the way, but it, it can be very challenging. It can, you know, and, and, uh, one of the things that we've certainly learned is that we need to equip facilitators with tools to help them manage the room because you're right. You've got, you've got 10 or 12 people in the room that are all entrepreneurs and all think they're right mm. all the time. Uh, so we've got to equip our facilitators to have the ability to have crucial conversations and call BS when it's necessary and those kind of things. But you know, most of our facilitators are previous entrepreneurial owners, so they, 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 they can look in the mirror and see exactly what they're going to be trying to facilitate. And uh, for the most part, we have really no real issues. Uh, you know, people are respectful. And when you get that trust relationship, you get the right to say, hey, Joe, enough, That's right. quiet down. <laughs> You know, so so it, it really goes very, very smoothly for the most part. And, uh, you know, we're we're grateful for the folks that are willing to step up and take it, take a shot at leading groups for a while for us.
Yeah. And, you know, you just reminded me when you said that, you know, uh, we've had, you know, I've been with you, with the peer groups for a long time, like I mentioned, but we've had some really like, uh, we really get into it there, you know, and we talk about, it's not just business. It's also, you know, our life work balance and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple meetings where people were just, you know, relatives had died or they were sick and, you know, it comes out or, you know, uh, and, and, you know, there's no holding back and it, it can get, and just the opposite. There could be, you know, celebrations where people won great deals and we all high fived and we all, you know, and, uh, celebrated. And, uh, it's really a tribe mentality. I strongly, strongly recommend the peer groups and I'm glad it's, it's, it's stronger and better than ever now. Right. It is, you know, uh, we made the decision in 2018 to, to sell to ConnectWise, not because it wasn't working, but because we wanted to expand the reach, right? Mm-hmm. And we were at a point where I was either going to have to put a whole lot more money into the, into the business to grow it or let somebody with a lot more resources take over. And, and that was the decision and the path we chose. And you know they have they have expanded uh, the reach. They have provided the resources. It's great having a marketing team mm. and a sales team and all these things that we didn't really have before. And so uh, you know we're up to serving almost 600 companies now, and and uh, it, it's it's really taken off and and thriving. And you know we're adding new components to the program uh, as the industry changes. We've got M and A peer groups now. We've got CFO peer groups. Hmm. Our service peer groups have have really grown, and so we're we're really going deeper in these companies because you know they're growing, they're bigger, and they've got more people that are making decisions. So we want to support all that, and you know the ultimate goal is to help people figure out what they're trying to accomplish and then get there. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the legacy play that we have is tell me what you want to do and let us help you get there. And uh, that's what the peer groups are all about. Yeah. And oftentimes the business owners don't know what they want. That's right. But that's where the planning comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, after you begin to see the numbers and really understand the, the levers that you have to pull as an owner to drive value uh, they quickly figure it out. And, uh, you know, the, the planning process really drives that discipline and, and helps them to define what their ideal outcome is. And then then the group can dive in and help them get there. And hold them accountable. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned earlier how a lot of the MSPs um, are technology led, even small businesses. Usually the, the principal, the owner, you know, is very good at the particular science or discipline that they're working in. And to move them to sales and marketing is a challenge. Uh, you know, what what do we do about that? We, we try to get them more resources. We try to convert them. A lot of them feel like sales is dirty and, you know, it's just a whole mindset. Without sales, you're not going to grow. Right. There's that, that is one of the big Achilles heels of small business in general, but certainly in the MSP space, you know, and, and what I've found, Joe, is that the, the first thing we have to do is get them to embrace owner led sales while they're smaller. You know, sales is not something you can just hire somebody and throw up over the fence to them. It won't work. And We've got lots and lots of examples of people that have tried that, and it it never works. Um, 
So until, until the owner will take responsibility for sales and kind of create a process, frame what the offering is, do all those kind of things, they can't hand it off. Right. And that's where it really always blows up. So they've got to embrace owner-led sales. And, and to me, that's probably a process that needs to stay in place till there are 15 to 20 employees. Mm. It's not... Most of them aren't going to have successful sales people in their company when they're less than than that size. Um, once they get there, though, then they've got enough, you know, uh, size and and scale in their finances to be able to go out and find a salesperson. But but their responsibility doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It has to just shift to now we're going to co-sell. Well, I teach you what I've been doing as an owner led and help you get to the place where you can have that same conversation. And once they get that first guy in place, then they, then they can, uh, you know, move forward with, with a, because the, they've documented, they've got some collateral to hand out and different things like that. And so, you know, most small businesses set salespeople up to fail from the start because they don't have a process. They don't have any supporting materials. They don't really give them a prospect list. They just think that somehow magically these, mm. these folks are going to figure it out, go out and find a potential prospect that wants to buy what they have to sell. And that doesn't happen in the real world. I don't even think it happens in the movies, you know? <laughs> um, so it, it's a journey to get there, but uh, it's not where you start. It's kind of where you get to as you grow. Yeah, I know. I know I've had salespeople in my, when I was young in the company and I certainly failed them, you know, um, you know, the whole adage of, you know, well, where's your prospect list? Well, here's a, you know, here's a phone book, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, it doesn't work. And also what you kind of said in there, which I think small businesses, MSPs struggle with smaller ones is delegation. Right. They want yes. to do everything themselves. They even want to order the, the pizza themselves. Nobody can do it right unless they do it. You know, and that you're not going to grow if that's the mentality. Absolutely. It's a it's a blocker for sure. Um, you know, I was one of those guys that uh, that didn't think we needed sales to be successful. Huh. I, I thought we could just do it with our technical team. And, uh, you know, we did grow for a while that way, but. Uh, we, we, we plateaued. I got stuck five years, basically at the same revenue level, couldn't figure out what to do to make it different. And the reality was I just couldn't go sell anymore. Mm. I, I was capped out, you know? And, and so, um, that's where we got into M and A and I brought on our first, uh, merger and, and got a, got a VP of sales and a real salesperson is part of that. And that helped us to take off and go to the next level. But it's, it's probably the hardest thing to do in a small business is really start to put sales, you know, in as a focus, because technically you, you said it, a lot of people think sales is a dirty thing. Yeah. Don't want to do it. Can't grow without it. I mean, it has to be part of the formula. Yeah, it definitely does. And yeah, you mentioned M&A, you know, growing organically or, you know, growing inorganically, you know, through through mergers and acquisition. I, I You know, I, I just remember and I hear you saying it always in my mind is that these companies look into M&A and they think their business is worth so much more than it is. Yes, that's very much the case today because the market's, you know, white hot. Right. And, uh, 
you know, people, people don't realize, you know, and, and this is definitely an area that we teach with our planning. Companies get bought because there's an ability to repay the price of that acquisition. Mm. And if you aren't making any money, if there's no profit, people can't afford to pay a lot of money. And so, um, you know, the name of the game is EBITDA and uh, making sure that there's a regular consistent profit uh, that's going to be generated. The beauty of the MSP space is a lot of that money comes through contracts. And mm -hmm. so it's predictable and you can count on it. And so that's what's making the market, you know, love our industry right now is that it's a pretty predictable thing. But still, at the end of the day, if you've got contracts and you're not making money, nobody really wants to talk to you uh, because they'll never be able to recoup their investment. And so uh, profitability is still the driver for valuation. And especially in a service-based industry, you know, uh, I, I remember, I don't know if this has changed at all, but, you know, uh, service leadership, like best in class, we're talking about margins, like best in class were around 20 to 23%. Is that still the case? Uh, best in class EBITDA runs about you know, low twenties, right? And uh, that's that's still the case. You know, the average across our peer groups is is a little under twelve percent. Mm. Um, so you know, the MSP world is it's a it's a tough business. There's no doubt about it. But once you get your model in place and you begin to really optimize, you can grow that. And again, with the contracts. Once you get them, get the engine going, it's pretty predictable and uh, you can, you can really make it happen. Yeah, very true. And I also want to make the point is that, you know, we had a decent amount of, you know, peers in the peer group who just liked the lifestyle business and they didn't really want to grow that much. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, if that's what they want to do. Yeah, Joe, uh, this is a project I've been working on a lot in the last uh, 18 months. It's something that we call the modes theory. Hmm. And uh, there are four different types of, of companies that we've identified and, and uh, really talk about. You know, everybody begins as a startup. So that's the first, first uh, type of company. And, uh, you know, startups are typically uh, underfunded, chaotic, hair on fire, the owner's doing everything and, uh, you know, surrounds himself with some other people like him usually that, that are on fire too. Uh, you know, over time, if they, if they learn how to put some process in place, hire some right people and start to generate a profit, then they can choose to move to another mode. Mm. And, uh, the three other modes that, that we have uncovered, we first one we call is the balance builder which is really the lifestyle kind of mode. They value what they do with their time and their money, and they're not focused on trying to, to drive some giant outcome. They just want a nice, steady life that they can enjoy with their family, make enough money to support that. And uh, like you said, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. In fact, some of the happiest people I know are balance builders because they're they're not trying to, you know, conquer the world right. they just want to make enough money to enjoy life and have the time to really do it with with the people they care about so you know that group is is a, a pretty good chunk of of our industry 
The second, sec, second mode that startups grow into is called the value builder mode. And that's the, that's the set of partners that are trying to grow over the long haul. You know, it's the slow up and to the right kind of process. They, uh, they're trying to find the right people and the right customers that they can develop a relationship with. And, and they just want to play the long game and get to a point down the road where they'll be able to sell the company and, uh, you know, be able to support their future. The, the balance builder, the lifestyle type companies, they've got to save the money as they go because they're not going to sell their company in the end for a whole lot of money because they're not building a lot of value in the company. Whereas the value builders playing the, the let's build this thing over time game. And then the fourth, the fourth or, or final uh, mode is the empire builder. Okay, the empire builders are typically come from, from one of the other modes, often from the value builder mode. And uh, they're all about go big or go home, man. Mm. We're going we're gonna to do something big. We're going to do it fast. Almost always they bring in outside money. And uh, right now in our space, it's private equity money. And uh, they use that money to do acquisition and to drive their, their organic growth. But they're on a timeline. They're playing, uh, you know, big stakes to win quickly. And... Uh, if it works, it's a great thing. If it doesn't work, it's it's uh, not a good thing. Mm. But, uh, you know, there's a bunch of that going on right now in our space. And that's really what's driving the M&A market in a lot of ways is these empire builders often on a three to five year kind of timeline. And, you know, they're 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 trading basically their life for that period of time to try to get a big return. And uh, so there's a lot of those in, in play. We'll, we'll see what happens if it really works out the way they think it will on paper. And in the peer groups, when you have these distinctions, I, I would assume that you really can't mix and match a lot of them because these empire builders don't want to be with the lifestyle, right? They want to be with other empire builders. How does that get divided up? Yeah, so so we are we are pulling the empire builders out mm. into their own groups because you're right, the conversations that they have are completely mm. different than what a value builder or a balance builder would have. You know, they've got board of directors, they've got external funding, they're running their, their business on a budget, uh, a very strict budget, all those kind of things. So there's a ton of discipline that has to happen at that level that doesn't happen in the others. And so we have groups specifically for empire builders um, and, and we have to facilitate that differently with somebody with more experience in the, in the big space. Mm. Um, value builders and, and, and uh, balance builders can fit together in a group. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're closer. A lot of times balance builders may be one, wanting to become a value mm. builder. So they're trying to figure that out. So there's some, some value there. Value builders often are, you know, they're not going to do a lot of a lot of M&A acquisitions, but they might be looking for a company they could plug into their their business, not to disrupt it and go crazy. But so there's a lot of goodness that can happen in those relationships. We have a lot of activity within the peer groups in terms of M&A activity hmm. because there's trust there. Right. right. They they know each other. They know the businesses that they've spent years together seeing the financials and all those kind of things. So. 
So we do, you know, the startups typically are going to be in our online program because they don't believe they can be gone for a couple of days to come to a, a face-to-face wow. meeting. So we have a program just for, for startups, basically online. And then the value and balance builders are kind of sprinkled together. And then we have the empire builders that are in their own groups. And these kind of divisions, I don't think it doesn't seem like they're solely toward, uh, you know, based on MSPs. It seems like any business can really fit in them. That, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it, it is kind of the, the way different businesses are, no matter the industry. And so, you know, what we're what we're learning and teaching our 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 MSPs are that you need to understand your end client and where they fit mm. in what mode they're in, because they all have different desired outcomes. And the, the sooner you can understand that, you know, and a lot of them are feeling it today because those that are in the empire builder mode are, are gobbling up some of their other clients mm. and they feel the pain of that because today you know, company Y is a client and tomorrow they got acquired by company Z and they're gone. Um, you want to have that conversation, you know, are you in, are you trying to sell your company? How could I help you get that ready? You know, those kind of things, but you're right. Modes applies across all businesses. And uh, we think it can be a game changer in how you should communicate and really plan to serve folks in different modes. Yeah, it, it, uh, I love it. I, I remember when I first heard about it and you you actually matured it a bit. It's, it's uh, It sounds right on. The term MSP, managed service provider, where do you stand with that? Do you, I mean, I always I always like to ask, like, do you like that term for our industry? Uh, not really. It's it's too narrow. Um, you know, we, we often talk about TSPs, technology server, service providers. Because that embraces kind of the broader broader umbrella, you know. When M- when the MSP started, there there weren't. That's all it was was people that were really focused there. Mm. Today, everybody wants to be an MSP. Right. So you've got the office equipment guys, you've got the telcos, you've got AV, you've got all these adjacent kind of industries that are entering the game, and so. I like TSP because I think that's a that's a really a reflection of what's really going on out there. Yeah, I like that term too. Sometimes I hear ITSP as well, information technology service providers. But as long as it's a service provider, and I always hear numbers being thrown around, and I always want you know how many are, are there, and you know, but how many really are value added right resellers, right? That are just resellers trying to. I mean, the MSP industry is so attractive because of all this M&A and, you know, like you mentioned before, um, I've always, and I don't, I've never shared this with you and I'm going to share with you now, but I've always uh, valued you as the godfather of the MSP. I, I just thought that, you know, you're there. I think you're there in the beginning, certainly one of the founders, but just, you know, you want to be an MSP, you want to be good at it. Talk to Arlen, talk to his, you know, see what he does, see what he thinks about it. Uh, I wonder what you think about that uh, moniker. Well, I think that's a little too much credit. That's what I think. Uh, You know, I was around in the early days, but I certainly didn't figure it out. Uh, And, you know, I I remember the first time I actually heard the concept was was in 2004 at a SMB Nation event out in Redmond. Mm. 
And, uh, you know, there was this crazy concept of, you know, let's just charge them a, a flat fee price to take care of their stuff. And, you know, everybody was up in arms. You can't do that. How are you going to do that? You have no idea what you're doing. Well, we didn't have any tools back then, you know, to enable it. Right. So it was kind of a guessing game, to say the least. But I remember the first time that we talked about it in our peer groups was that in early 2005. And, you know, it was the blind leading blinder. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't know what I was talking about, really. Uh, but we had a great conversation as a group. We worked our way through it. We put together some plans and people began to start to implement it. And, you know, it wasn't until we got to 2010 or so when like, automate came out and and or lab tech at the time where we had some tools that could actually help us to manage these networks uh up until that point it was a whole lot of getting the getting the truck and drive <laughs> and uh so you know it's matured a lot over the years but uh those early days were scary days for sure because no nobody knew exactly what it was and we're scared to death of a fixed price kind of service model uh, because we'd always been time and materials or, or prepay. And uh, so it, it, it was a fun transition. Yeah. But I certainly don't take credit for it because I didn't invent it by any stretch. Well, part of being the godfather is modesty of which you, of which you are. Uh, but that switch from, um, you know, T&M, from time and materials to, to flat rate was huge. And then we... I, I see the next transition like to cloud where everybody was concerned about where to move to the cloud. And now we kind of see this transition to from infrastructure to information where people's apps need to be monitored. And it's another dramatic shift. I just hope the MSPs can make that shift and they're dynamic enough to do so. Well, and at the same time, we got all this security security pressure right. going on. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it's it's one thing to try to secure things where you've got physically got control. It's another thing now with work from home or work from anywhere right. where you don't have control of the, the perimeter in any way. And uh, then you got the cloud in the mix. And so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts right now. And uh, but you're right that the the real outcome is data and business intelligence and and all those kind of things. That's that's where the rubber meets the road for the client. How can the technology really help them run their business? Um, you know, I, I've often said that we got away for a long time with just making stuff work, not really actually driving outcomes. Mm. And uh, those days are are, are going to get it get over. And you know, customers are going to ask us to use the technology to help guide their businesses real time. And uh, you know, we're seeing that in agriculture in a lot of ways right now. And so, hmm. you know, the tech the tech is getting better and better and more valuable and, and can be real time. And that's where we're going. I mean, I can remember conversations uh, eight, nine years ago with clients talking to them about the importance of security. I'm sure those conversations don't happen anymore. I mean, everybody knows how important it is. And, you know, there's many different layers. And so uh, it's just... The tools have to get more, have to get better, and the MSPs have to get better at uh, implementing them and supporting them. Yeah, but you'd be surprised how many people talk about security but don't actually spend mm. the money on security. Mm. And uh, that's still the the reality in the market today. Is 
there's very few customers that actually embrace security the way they need to. And MSPs have not done a great job of, of making clear what the, what the risk really is. Uh, you know, these, these breaches can be business ending kinds of things. And so uh, we've got to do a better job of educating and, and to your point, putting together the right tool set to provide maximum protection as cost effectively as we can. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a long ways from having our, our customers protected the way we need to. Yeah. I've actually talked to, you know, M and a firms, uh, that, you know, that want to do the acquiring. And, um, if, if you don't set, spend a certain amount of the percentage of your revenue on security, they won't consider you. I don't know what the number is, like 10% or something like that. And that, I mean, that's how important it is for even for acquirers to know that you take it seriously, that, you know, certain revenue has to be devoted to that. That's how important it is. Cause like you said, it could be business ending. Yeah. Well, and the other big thing right now, Joe, is that uh, getting cyber liability insurance mm. is also becoming a real challenge because again, companies aren't spending adequately to protect themselves. Mm. And so, you know, the loss ratios from these insurance carriers have been through the roof. And so um, they're saying no to a lot of a lot of people that can't show them that they've taken the right steps. And that's even true for MSPs. I, I've heard a lot of MSPs that have been canceled because they can't verify that they've got the right tools in place wow. to protect their own network. And, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a real challenge in our industry right now. And it is a project that we're working on at ConnectWise to, to try to have a solution for that by this summer. Yeah, the cobbler's kids don't have nice shoes, right? Shoes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so what advice do you give, would you give right now as we sit together, uh, you know, to MSPs, TSPs? Uh Probably the most important thing I see is the need to focus on people. Mm. You know, as we we're in, we're in this period of turmoil with what the workplace is going to look like, trying to hire new folks. I mean, culture has always been important, but right now culture is really at the top of the list in terms of getting people to come to work getting people to stay at work, mm. uh, you know, retention's a big challenge. And, you know, I, I MSPs, like, like we've talked about, you know, they love the technology, not so much the people. Mm. Uh, they got to they gotta change that, you know, and, and provide the right culture, the right environment. But they got to invest in, in folk creating leaders, right? used to be you could manage people by walking around the office and just looking over their shoulder, see what they're working on. I mean, today, you know, managing folks is a whole different ballgame. And so most, most MSPs are not equipped. They haven't trained their people to be able to do those kind of management and leadership things that need to happen. And so, you know, that's my big advice is invest in the people. If you don't, if you don't have the right people doing the right things, with the right management and leadership structure, you're, you're, at, you're at risk. And uh, there's a lot of people out there trolling LinkedIn, looking to pick people off. Mm. So you, you got to pe- create a culture where people want to be, you know, working for you. They may not be in the office with you, but 
you've got to have a culture where they want to be part of your company. And uh, we've taken that for granted for way too long. We got to really get serious about how we do that. Especially when you have the really big tech firms, you know, uh, the trillion dollar ones that are hiring people and they could just stay wherever they are and they're giving them very good salaries. Lots of, you know, the, the competition has never been uh, more available. You, you mentioned management and leadership. I always, when I always talk to business people, I always like to, you know, I've, I've had many managers in my, you know, in my company who thought they were leaders, uh, you know, and you have to kind of have that talk about what the difference is. Could you expand upon that? There's just a common misconception. Yeah. I mean, leadership to me is, is the ability to have a vision and a, a view of the future to help shape where things are going to go. Management is really what are the tactical things that need to happen once we know what we're trying to accomplish, where we're going, what do we have to do to actually get there day to day? And, uh, you know, there are two, there are two typically two different personality types. You know, you've got, you've got the more visionary forward looking folks that, that, uh, can help tell the story and bring people along. And then you've got to have these, these managers that can just execute whatever, you know, the marching orders are, uh, they're the ones that get the work done and uh, make sure that we accomplish it the way we're supposed to. If most leaders tried to be a manager, they would fail miserably. Mm-hmm. And most managers would run from being a leader because they like to know exactly what's going to happen, not make it up as, as they need to. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. This is the clear distinction there. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I want to ask what advice you would give vendors that want to work with MSPs, you know, that want to work better with MSPs. And I wonder if this, it's the same answers of the advice you give to MSPs. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is. It's understand what the other, whether you're an MSP or a vendor, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm. What does success really look like in our relationship? And, you know, um, Certainly, I've not been in the game in the recent years, but from my past experience, what me what made success to a vendor didn't always make sense to me as a VAR or an MSP. Mm-hmm. They got measured on things that I would have never really expected to be for them to be measured on, and vice versa. And you know, I'm a big believer that you know, if you're my vendor, I want to understand how you get paid, right? Because if I can understand that and help you get there, well, we now have trust. We've got a relationship. And uh, you're going to be more likely to reach out and figure out what success means to me and help me get there. And so that was always a question I asked when I when I met with a vendor is, how, how do people get paid? Hmm. You know, and, and it was always something, you know, I was always amazed. It might be, we need we need you to get a hundred seats in a, in, uh, in webinars this quarter, or, you know, we need you to find five new companies that will get their people trained or what, you know, it was, it was stuff that I, it wasn't just dollars, mm. right? We always think that vendors are going to pay their people based on sales. Well, that's a component for sure, but they've always got programs. They've got events. They've got other things that matter. And uh, so I, I just always took the tact of, Help me understand how you ha- how you're successful. I want to help you get there. 
I'll tell you what it means for us to be successful, and I hope you can help us mm-hmm. get there. If we create a win-win environment, everybody's happy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, here on the on the podcast, we talk a lot about discipline. You know, you know, I lost a lot of weight. Uh, people always ask me, you know, how I did it. I always say discipline, you know, ran a business for a while, you know, I, um, like they want some quick fix answer. Uh, and I just kind of really summarize it to discipline. I wonder how discipline plays a role in your life, Arlen. Well, um, you know, the, the, it plays a big role. Uh, it's an, it's a critical part of success and, uh, being successful in, in every area. The thing that I that I would say has caused the biggest shift for me uh, is writing daily. Hmm. So I write every day. I write a blog um, that uh, I've put out since really I started doing it in 2000. But since 2006, I got really serious about it, and uh, I haven't missed putting it out every day since uh, the fall of 2008. Wow. So for the last 13 and a half years, I have put out a daily update five days a week for 13 and a half years. Uh, I haven't missed one day. Wow. And, you know, I will tell you that it's basically a brain dump that I do of, of things that I've learned, things that I'm working on. Uh, I study scripture every day and I, I write a little bit about that and, and I include something that I learned from somebody else. And, you know, it's really, I write it for myself. I, I, I do it for me and it's that discipline clears my head, gets me ready for the day has just been a huge, huge impact for me. I send it out uh, to people that want it. So it goes out to about 800 people globally mm-hmm. every morning. Um, and I'm always glad to share it. I don't put it out on the public blog. I, I send it out individually, but um, you know, that discipline has been huge. Uh, you know, I too wrestle with weight. So I, I do fasting on a weekly basis, which has been a discipline that's helped me a bit. Mm. Um, for, for most of my life, I felt like if I wasn't eating every few hours, I might die, mm. uh, you know, and, and fasting has helped me shift my mindset to realize that that's not going to happen. I'll be okay. I don't have to eat all the time. And so, uh, you know, through the last two years, I've lost about 30 pounds as a result of just changing my attitude. Mm. Um, So there's there's things like that that, you know, they seem small, but they're really big. Discipline is a huge part of being able to be successful and uh, consistency. You know, it's the habits we build that will determine what really happens in our life. Mm. And uh, if you build those right habits with the right discipline you can, you can pretty much get anywhere you want to go. Fascinating about your journaling. I, I always knew you, you did that. So is it the first thing you do? Do you put pen to paper or do you type it? Do you do it after coffee, after breakfast? Like how, how does that work every, all five days a week? You know, for, for my goal is to do, I type it. So uh, my writing is pathetic. Mm. So I type it and, uh, you know, I, I just basically, uh, I use MailChimp as my tool and, and I, I create the, uh, create it in there and, uh, try to get it out every morning by about seven, seven fifteen, seven thirty. Um, and, but you know, the, the discipline of going through that process of 
you know, reflecting really is the key, right? Mm. What did I learn yesterday? Uh, what, what was the, the lessons, the things that, that uh, I thought about? And part, you know, a lot of it is just me recording what's going on. Um, you know, I, I always learn things as I get into scripture and, and study a few verses there. And, you know, I uh, collect throughout the, the, the week articles that I read that I think would be useful to other people. So I'll include one of those. Hmm. But, uh, you know, that discipline of just starting fresh every day with, with uh, you know, what happened yesterday, gratitude for the things I've learned that I can share. And, and uh, it just puts me in the right mindset because this is a crazy world we live in. Yes. And, uh, I, I have learned that I got to I got to get my head right before I can really be effective. Good for you. Yeah. Journaling. It's so important. I know so many people who do it and, uh, um, that in meditation, do you meditate at all? Or is that part of your meditation? It's part of it. Yeah. It's part of it. Yep. It's, it's fascinating to me. I, I do it not as often as you, and I find it really rewarding. Um, just also seeing your thoughts in print kind of help to solidify it for me anyway. Exactly. When it goes through your fingers, right. you get clarity. Right, you can't you can't really type unclear. Right, you gotta you gotta really be able to think through it to be able to put it down. So, I, I always tell people, anybody that reads my stuff every day, there's something wrong with them. Uh, it's just it's too much. But you know, I, what I find is that people will look at one and it, it was just the right one they needed for for where they're at. Right, and. Uh, they may only look at once a week or once every couple of weeks, but the day they do, it's it's useful, and that's what keeps me sharing it. I would write it anyway, but uh, I love to see people learn and and uh, take things and apply it in their own life. I forgot who said it. Maybe it was it was Hawthorne who said, "You know, don't be a writer, just be writing." You know, just keep writing. writing you know, um, what motivates you, Arlen Sorensen? Uh, you know, I, I would say the biggest thing for me is really to impact people and, and help people be successful, you know, and right now, Joe, my, my thing is helping people move from success to significance. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm focused more and more on people that are starting to exit their businesses or, or leave leadership roles. And the, the surprising thing to me has been that you would think when you sell your company successfully, you've got the money that you had hoped to earn, you've had a great career, that life would just be simple. And uh, I find that people's identity has been so entwined in their business that when they sell it, they're lost. Wow. They, they don't have a purpose. And so, uh, you know, we've started a new peer group, Success to Significance, and, and that's the focus. How can I help? you figure out your purpose for the next chapter of your life because the things that you didn't have when you were a startup time and treasure now you've got time talent and treasure mm. and you're set up to do really great things but if you don't have a purpose it won't happen and uh almost always people say you know i thought i could play golf watch netflix travel, spend time with my family. And that worked for two or three months. Mm. And now I don't know what to do. Um, so 
that's the stuff that motivates me is how can I help people really figure out how to be successful, but then make that transition to significance and, and real legacy. Uh, that's, that's noble and uh, noteworthy. I know some people are in that program, by the way, and they love it. They absolutely love it. Um, and how do you measure success? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I used to measure success with money, and that is not the measure of success. I've come to re- to believe that success is really about relationships and uh, and the influence and impact I can have through those relationships. And as I think about then shifting now to significance, you know, it's about how do I influence not only my generation or my kids. How do I how do I influence for generations to come? Hmm. And that's the that's the thing I'm kind of focused on right now is how do I create generational legacy that's going to be here a hundred years from now or two hundred years from now? Um, what can I do today that will will put in place things that are going to really last over time and and make an impact? And so that's really uh, kind of my current focus right now. Wonderful, wonderful. I share in that as well. Arlen, thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. I, I learned so much. I've learned so much from you and, and your processes and what you've done. You know, the peer group completely changed, you know, my 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 business attitude and and knowledge. And I, I have you to thank for it. And I know many do as well. You're very humble. You don't like to take the compliments, but I certainly will. And I will continue to uh, compliment you and appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Joe. Uh, it's great to see you and uh, look forward to the next time we can chat. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You be well, Arlen. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you'll find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider $5, 10 or $20 a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. It's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations.